listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome in to the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week before we get to this week's guest, a retired Army Ranger who uh, has a Bronze Star for Valor, also been in movies, now working to make the lives of veterans much better every single day. We'll get to him coming up in just a moment. But first, as always, our normal announcements, getting close to the holidays. Make sure you guys, if you're going to do Amazon shopping, go to our website, hazardground.com first. Click on that Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage. It'll redirect you to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, then we'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show. It's a very easy and simple way for you guys to help veterans charities and donate to veterans charities just by going to hazardground.com first. So please go to hazardground.com for that. Continue to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at hazard ground and hazard ground podcast. I say this stuff every week and we need your guys help. Don't forget to leave us five star reviews wherever you give us a thumbs up. Uh, be speaking of thumbs up, by the way, follow, uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel as well. Uh, hit that like button and subscribe there as well. But uh, wherever you guys are leaving reviews about the hazard ground, please continue to give us five stars. Tell us why you love the show. We certainly appreciate all the help and support there as well all right again i told you this week's guest uh former u.s army staff sergeant uh who spent a little bit over eight years in the united states army is a bronze star for valor and a purple heart uh he his unit in iraq was one of the hardest hit since the vietnam war uh and certainly has an incredible story to tell there he's been in movies he's training to be the world record holder for the highest box jump and he's also currently working with an organization called the warrior alliance that has a plethora and i mean a, a ton of resources available to help veterans improve their lives every single day it's an organization that i know very well they're based right here in atlanta uh it's got an incredible reach and uh it's just a fantastic organization the warrior alliance he's patrick brown joining us here on the hazard ground project pad- podcast <laughs> patrick welcome hey thanks for having me mark as i stumble over the name of my own show thank you very much uh great to be with you uh you know and again background for everybody uh, i've worked with patrick before in his work with the warrior alliance um he's done just an amazing job here of of continuing to enrich the lives of veterans every single day and it's always important that we we highlight those people still doing it because you know uh, as you know as well as i do it's what happens after the uniform comes off that sometimes uh you know ends up being uh you know the harder fight that they have to fight um all that said again appreciate all your effort and your work it's great to finally sit down and chat with you one-on-one and hear your individual story but start back at the beginning for me how and why'd you get in the army Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's something I don't really like to touch on, but I was, I was a troubled teen growing up, um, with a dysfunctional family, uh, and I was a dysfunctional father and I was getting into some trouble and I, I stumbled across the recruiting. I was going to go talk to the Navy recruiting and it just happened to be that he was out for lunch and I was walking out to my car and the army recruiter was just standing there smoking a cigarette and, and reeled me on in. Yeah. Uh, it's always fortunate timing. I, I mean, you know, would you you wouldn't characterize it as I have a bad recruiter story, right? No, it was great. Okay, well, good. At least there there was that. So, um, you know, being a troubled teen, did did the army interest you just because it was something different, or did you think it was like a way out, or did you think it was going to reform your life? Like, what was your intentions in going? Yeah, ahead? so I was I was looking to definitely reform my life because by the time I joined the military, I've already I'd already been to jail four or five times. Wow, and it it wasn't looking good from there. So I knew I had to get away from the crowd I was hanging out with, look for something new. And the recruiters sold me on, you know, the brotherhood, um, typically the band of brothers that you're going to form and, and the opportunities that it brings. Just out of curiosity, because I know some recruiters, how hard was it for you to get a waiver? 
It was pretty hard. It, it took going back and forth to the courthouse a few times, paying some fines. Yeah, it was pretty uh, tough. Wow. Um, it's interesting, you know, and I didn't know that about you, obviously. That's why mm -hmm. I was kind of taken, taken aback. And, you know, I mean, you've, you've in your reformed life have put together yeah, such yeah. a great, you know, proper appearance and, you know, chiseled jaw and all that and everything. You'd never think you were the kind of guy who got in trouble. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, when, when you look back on it, um, you know, that, that moment getting in, do you think it saved your life? I do. I, I really think it saved my life because I'd either be in dead or in jail right now if I would have kept on the path I was on. Wow. Um, yeah. What's so just, I don't know if you want to get too into it, but what sort of things got you in trouble? Was it just Yeah, like I mean, I, I was I was stealing, uh, robbing people, uh, getting in fights, underage drinking, throwing parties in houses that weren't mine. Just <laughs> typical teen stuff. <laughs> throwing a party in a house that's not yours. Uh, yeah. Uh, there, there's that. So you sign up. Now, did you have any idea what you were getting into? No, I didn't. Well, I, I knew briefly about what I was going to get into. The recruiter laid it out as you're going to go, you're going to go to war, you're going to shoot guns, and you're going to learn how to blow stuff up. And he sold me right on that. So going into basic training, that's what I was anticipating uh, to learn the next eight to 12 weeks. And, and it all went out from there. Uh, shoot guns and blow stuff up. Uh, I guess yeah. that might not have been that much different than the life you're already leading. You're like, I could probably <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That, that, was it that simple? Um, all right. So did you have any like sort of physical prowess? Were you physically ready for basic training and everything? Yeah, I was. So I was, I was a cross country runner. I was a long distance runner. So physically in shape, I was great. I was scrawny. I was 160 pounds, maybe going into basic training. Um, but it was more of shaking the mentality of what I was going into basic training with. I had to get rid of that mentality that I'm here to learn as a unit and fight as one, not just always looking out for myself, but looking out for others as well. As somebody who had uh, turned their their nose up at authority figures already, was that the toughest part of basic training for you? Uh, yeah, it, it was pretty tough because I every time a drill sergeant got in my face, I just clinched my jaw knowing I had to be there. And I sucked it up because I knew if I wasn't there, um, I'd be back right back where I was. And that's I did not want to be there. Did you get into a fight in basic training with anyone? No, I didn't, thankfully. Oh, but okay. I did sneak out of basic training and try to go to the the shopette and behind all the drill sergeants' backs and got caught. Ah, what, what, what did you need at the shopette? Uh, candy, like every like every new grunt needs. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. How'd you get caught? Um, just the shaved head. I looked out of place, like I wasn't supposed to be there, and I ran back to the barracks, and the drill sergeant was standing there waiting for me. So he beat me. Oh, really? Yeah. What do you say when you got there? Oh, I got I got the living hell smoked out of me for for a couple hours in front of the whole company. Nobody got their mail. Everybody lost their calls all because of me. People wanted to beat me up. It was pretty bad for a couple of days. Did, did how did you get back in the good graces of everybody? Or you never really did? I just no. I just became more of a team player, leaned in, volunteering more, uh, offering to carry the ammo when I didn't have to, just stuff like that. Yeah. Um. Did Did you get a sense that sort of your mentality was changing during basic training. Could you feel it happening when it was happening? Absolutely. Absolutely. I was, I was definitely becoming more mature in my own skin. Um, I'd lost the ch chip on my shoulder pretty quickly and I got pretty humbled, um, you know, quarter way, halfway through the basic training where I realized this is a new life starting and I had to embrace it. Did any of the people that you had left behind question your decision? My mother did. Um, she was very disappointed of me going into the army because she knew we were at war. She thought I was going to go into the Navy. Um, and she found out at MEPS, actually, when I was joining the army. She saw the army shirt, the army recruiting and everything like that. And my dad kept it a secret, but he knew it was what was best for me. But she was in tears crying. Um, but everybody else seemed pretty excited that I knew. A lot of the friends, they they just up and abandoned me. I was going to say, what about the crew you were running with? Yeah, we just stopped talking. I haven't talked to them in, in almost 20 years. Wow.
Not even through social media or anything. No, no one's nothing. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Do you, do, do, do you ever wonder how they're doing? Do you even know? I, do. I look back. I've heard stories about some um, getting in trouble with the law, you know, multiple kids, multiple wives, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Uh, just the, 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 the good life as they yeah. say. Um, <laughs> all right. So you finish and you're going infantry, right? Like you, that was, that was yep. part of the contract. You knew that was going. Okay. So you finished basic and AIT. Um, what, what you signed up in 2005. So what time frame are we talking? Are you done by 06? Yeah. So I, I was in Germany, uh, January, 2006. Uh, so right in the middle of the winter time, they were in their training rotation when I'd gotten there in Hohenfels, Germany. Um, me and another kid, there was 10 of us in basic training that were all going to Germany together, but we all got spread out between different units. Um, and one of them ended up being in my platoon. Uh, but the night before we were supposed to report out to Hohenfels, Germany, we decided to hit the bar a little too much. 18 uh, year olds in Germany by ourselves, drinking age is legal. And the next morning to report to get on the bus to head out there, it didn't work out so well for my friend. And it turned into a pretty rough 30 days out in the woods. Uh, two of the two of the worst drunken experiences of my life were the night before I got on a plane to go to advance camp at Fort Lewis, Washington, as a, you know, junior in college going through ROTC. And the other night, believe it or not, was the night before I left Baghdad on my first tour. We got, I literally puked at Biap. I just bent over and threw up <laughs> in the middle of Biap. I was like, you're okay? I'm like, no, I'm not okay. I almost threw up in my Kevlar on the flight to Kuwait. Yeah, it was bad. Oh. Uh, the, the things we do when we're young, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, you remember those nights. But, you know, it, it's interesting because, you know, you're at this point now. Um, at, does combat like ever enter into your mind frame as you're going? Cause it seems like you're going through all these changes. You're not really thinking about what's six, seven months down the road. Yes. I wasn't thinking about it at all. Um, you know, you see what you see on TV, you hear the news, but it didn't re really register because I've never been there before. So my mind, I was still in Germany. I was still had X amount of months to party. And that's all I could think about until it was time to get on the airplane to fly over. Did, um, did you, had you ever been out of the, the United States prior to going to Germany? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I have. Okay. All right. I didn't know if in your in your <clears throat> run-ins, uh, you, you you never got a chance to uh to go overseas. So you're, when do you actually leave for Iraq? Uh, so we we're in Hohenfels, uh, Germany, in summer of 2006, and we got a short order notice saying we're leaving in a couple months. Um, so we ended up leaving to Baghdad in uh, August of 2006, mm -hmm. and we were a part of the surge. Yeah. Uh, what did anybody in your platoon, whether it be your squad leader, team leader, platoon sergeant, anybody? tell you because i'm sure some of these guys had already had combat experience mm -hmm. at this point in time what yeah did they so, tell you about what you were walking into so a lot of, a lot of people said don't don't have expectations just know the area that we're going to know that the population that we're going to be dealing with and try to go off of that because their their deployment that we they were on before we deployed wasn't wasn't all that great either so they were going in telling us all the horror stories um you know what it's like to see a dead body what's it like to pull the trigger facing somebody and it doesn't really register because i haven't experienced it yet so i'm thinking of all these different scenarios in my mind of how it's going to play out and then what it actually does it's nothing like you you'd expect it to yeah um it never is and you know there's always a gap mm. between training and reality that uh that combat presents but you know beyond that um did you have any sort of preconceived expectations or notions about, you know, what combat was? I mean, look, I mean, th th for a guy who, you know, you go through sort of the life you had and running from the cops and doing things you're mm -hmm. not supposed to do. There's a certain level of, like, I guess, you know, mindset and adrenaline that comes with that. Did any of that you think helped serve you going into combat? 
I think so. Um, it definitely kept me on my toes and always, you know, keeping an eyeful watch around my, my situation where I was in my situation during my situations when I was there. And it definitely kept me hype, like hypersensitive. I was definitely more alert. Um, but there were times too, where I'd be slipping as well. And I'd have to have people smack me on the back of the helmet and say, Hey, you know, like we're in the middle of a combat zone, you know, pay attention. So when you get there, where are you, where are you going? Do you know? And what, 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 what is the unit's mission? Yes. So, uh, it was first infantry division, uh, first battalion, 26 infantry regiment of Germany. And we were supposed to be going to Mosul. And last second we were told we're going to a little combat outpost on the banks of the Tigris river in a town called Adamia, which is Northeast Baghdad, right next to Sadr city. Um, it was the home where Saddam Hussein gave his last speech before going into hiding home of his bath party. And you know, we get there. Uh, we were told we're going to be in this house and we pull in and it's, it's this mansion, this massive mansion that uh, Saddam Hussein's lived in, sons lived in. Uh, come to find out it was all blown up. We drove past it and I'm like, wait a minute, I thought I thought this is where we we're staying. And we opened up this big Game of Thrones style gate and it's this little two story house. And they're like, oh, 120 guys are going to stay in here the next 10 months. Um, 10 turned into 12, 12 turned into 15 and and so on. Um. Yeah, and oh, by the way, Sadr City for those, you know, Muqtada al-Sadr's uh, stronghold, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, um, preceding the surge, because I was mm -hmm. there the year before when the violence had gotten out of control, um, you know, that was a, that place was nuts. Yeah. Like, it was, it was crazy. Everything was going bad every single day there, and it's not an area you wanted to. to yeah, we were not welcomed at all. No, no. Uh, just driving through the streets, you felt like something bad was going to happen. Yep. Uh, so are, are, is your job there basically just to find the bad guys and that's it? I mean, were you guys doing patrols on a routine? Yeah, basis? we were doing daily patrols. We were supposed to bring stability and peace to the region. Um, so, you know, infrastructure, we were installing these massive generators all over the city. And then in turn, the militia would blow them up, um, which would leave the city dark most of the time. Uh, but, yeah, we would go house to house, try to develop relationships with the tribal leaders in hopes they would, you know, turn on these IED and suicide bombing making facilities and let us know where they were. But it was every day, um, you know, we were either getting pop shots, an ID would go off, a hand grenade would be thrown at us or all out firefight. Um, I, I kind of just want to set this up a little bit. Like you get injured in October. You got there when again in the summer, you said? In August. In August. Okay. So you'd, yeah. it was three months before. You talk about the kind of level and op tempo that you had, mm -hmm. some firefights. Do you remember your first experience with, with, with combat? Yeah, so I was actually a driver of a Humvee, and we were around this Abu Hanifa mosque where Saddam Hussein last spoke, and we were always thinking the mosque was a stronghold for like an armory, weapons armory, and we could never go in it, though. So we would just pull security outside of it, and we were going down a back street leading up to the mosque, and it was very pitch black again. The generators we were putting out were getting blown up, so the city was in the dark, and I hear this metal clunk hit my truck, and then we hit a light, a street light, and I slam on my brakes, I see a grenade roll and it gets stuck in the little hook mount that's on top of the hood and it just blows up right in my face. Thankfully, the, you know, the bulletproof glass stopped all the shrapnel, but it was just an all out firefight from there. Just guns blazing every which direction. We didn't know who was shooting where, what, where it was coming from. It was just, you know, lay down fire, get out of there. Uh, but thankfully, nobody was hurt. After that experience, was there a part of you that said I made the wrong decision? I probably Absolutely not. I wanted more of it. I was ready for more. I was young, dumb-headed. I was hard-headed and dumb. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, uh, it's always one of those things that you always you typically have one or, one or two reactions. That, you know, one yeah. of the, okay, real just gets real, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's the other part of it that says, okay, let's let's do it again. You know, uh, next time I'm I'm more ready. I'm more prepared. I'm more, you know, in tune with my senses, yeah. so to speak, and how to do this. And, uh, you know, 
in in that sort of foolish i don't want to call it totally foolish but in that sort of you know mentality you just you always forget that the enemy has a say right and yeah. that's that's part of the whole thing of combat that continues to keep things random and unpredictable is because yeah. you know all, yeah all- and i never thought i would get wounded either um people around me were getting wounded and you know i just i kept saying this prayer going out the gate that i would always be okay that everybody would return safely nobody would get hurt and as people were getting wounded you know we were losing an average of two guys a month um the new KIA, not, not included, you know, out of 120 men unit, we had 144 purple hearts. So it shows people are getting wounded pretty frequently, multiple, multiple purple hearts per person. Um, so when the time came and I got hurt and I finally realized I wasn't bulletproof and like, oh shit, you know, the pucker factor, I really need to be paying attention more. Before we get to you, I mean, yeah. What did that do to your mindset when you start seeing guys fall out, you know, get, get hit and guys getting killed? I mean, you know, uh, it, all of a sudden, you know, did, did, jail almost seemed like a better option yeah I, I didn't want to be there for sure um i did think about home a lot and how could i get out of this i even thought about a time where i would turn a weapon on myself just to get out of combat but i you know i knew it was crazy thinking and that's not the way to go i still had people that were you know there to my left and right that wanted me to be there to protect them them to protect me but i definitely it, it raised my awareness about the combat zone that i was in and i, I for sure did not want to be there longer than i had to be did you tell anybody about those fears? Did you call back? I did. Yeah, I told my team leader and he was he was almost going along with it. He's like, I'll be the one to shoot you. <laughs> and it, it was crazy. It was crazy. Uh, it never thankfully never came into fruition, but it was a thought that passed my mind. I mean, when you look back on it, um, do, do you feel like you were smarter and better for expressing those thoughts? when you had them because so often right mm-hmm. none of us ever express those thoughts when we have them we don't if we do we only express them to ourselves we don't say it out loud yeah so kind of fast forward into the work you're doing now you start to see other veterans and everybody yeah. never shared those thoughts and now they got to unpack that stuff 5 10 15 20 years later mm-hmm. yeah i mean it definitely raised my awareness um i i do think if i wouldn't have brought it up i might have followed through with it and who knows what that would have done legally legal actions and ramifications um, you know, being chaptered out of the military could have been an option, but I knew I had to be there. I had to fight. So I stuck with it. All right. So all this stuff is going on around you. Yeah. Uh, get to October 19th, 2006. Normal morning. Does it feel like a normal day? What, yeah. What normal. It was our, our, our platoons rotation. We did three patrols a day, four hours each time. <laughs> Excuse me. Just going around the, the city of Aubany or, uh, um, Otomia and, it was our second patrol of the day and we we're going dismounted this time. The first one was a mounted patrol, just driving around vehicles, going house to house, just knocking on doors. How's everybody doing? Handing out soccer balls, the, the normal. And then the second time uh, we had a suspected I or uh, yeah, an IED making facility that we wanted to check out or at least get close to without them kind of knowing we were looking at it and we were going house to house trying to gather information. Um, next thing we know, we we're, the vehicles are on one alley and then we're on the other side of the buildings in another alley and fire just rings out like bullets are hitting all around us. Uh, so we duck into the building. My, my squad did, there were seven of us. We ducked into the building to try and make it to the other side of the building where the Humvees were waiting. So hopefully we could get in unscathed and get back to the base uh, and regroup. Um, but that was, as that was happening, there were hand grenades starting to throw. They were attacking, attacking us on three different angles. So getting to the vehicles seemed a little bit more desperate than I remember um i just remember i wanted to be inside that vehicle because it was up armor we had a machine gun on top and i I would be safe uh so as my squad leader called the vehicles in um 
the vehicles rolled up and the first three guys ran out. They got into their designated vehicles. There were still shots ringing out. Our 240s were ringing out uh, to the rooftops nearby, eliminated a couple hostile targets. And as soon as I popped out the door, the bullet went right through my right arm. And then the guy behind me went right through his right shin, shattered his shin. Uh, so we dropped to the ground. Thankfully, the vehicles pulled up. We were able to block off the direction of fire, uh, lay down suppressive fire until we could get in the Humvees and get back to safety. Yeah. Um, 762, right? Uh, ne- ne- never mm-hmm. yep. down. Um, you know, what's going through your mind is these, did, did it feel different, the amount of volley of fire you were taking initially? It did. It seemed, it seemed like it was an all out war. Um, everything, your senses go, you're, are super heightened. Uh, you know, you're not really thinking clearly. You're trying to come up with this plan of action, what you're going to do next, but all hell breaks loose and you're just seeing everybody react differently. And everybody's main objective was to get to those vehicles. So people were leaving people behind so they can get in the vehicles. And I think that's kind of what happened. Everybody just ran out the door for themselves and I waited a second too long. And that's when I got hit. Um, <clears throat> Do you, are you able to sense fear in those moments? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Did you think you were not going to get out alive? I did. The amount of blood, at first I didn't know where I was shot. And when I saw the blood, I immediately thought I was going to die. I immediately started thinking of my family. Um, but then I had guys in the Humvee that were laughing. And, you know, they cut all my clothes off to make sure I wasn't hit anywhere else. They started packing the wound. But there were guys that were just laughing at the situation. Combat medics, you know, sick, sick humored. And I'm just sitting here thinking, like, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And then the morphine hit. And next thing I know, I'm in the green zone. Um when you think back to those moments um, and, and you realize how close you came, you know, to biting the big one, so to speak, did you ever feel like, you know, okay, now I, now I definitely need to get out of here. I mean, that, that same fervor that you went with, Hey, I want more now when it's you, it's, it's, does it, is it different than, Hey, I want some more. No, it actually reversed that. It made me ramp it up to the point where I had the opportunity to go back to Germany and recover. And I stayed at the green zone, recovered, went back to my unit and my platoon sergeant said, hey, you know, you can go back if you'd like and stay on rear D. And with the amount of fighting we were in, I knew the guys around me would be disappointed. Um, Granted, the situation would happen to me, but I decided to stay back in Iraq with them. And I think my intensity to want to fight picked up even more. Uh, any kind of, you know, I mean, it was only two weeks after I've never been shot. So I don't know how quickly you can recover from a gunshot. It was pretty sore for a while, but it felt more of like a Charlie horse, I'd say a week or two after. Um, but I mean, it was still, I was able to function, able to move and my platoon sergeant even said, you know, if if you get shot, we're just going to put dirt and we're going to keep pushing out. We're not going back to the base. It was that dire to the point where we're losing so many men where we couldn't afford to lose people anymore. So people were refusing to go to the green zone. Just keep me here. Refusing to go back to Germany. Just saying, keep me here. I need to fight. So we got to see a lot of brave faces. With so many people getting hit, um, was there a sense, and again, you're Woody, an E4 at this point in time? I was an E3, yep. E3? You're this young kid, E3, with with no rank anywhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, did it seem hopeless? Did it seem like if the, if we stay here, we're all going to die? It, that's exactly how it started to seem. Um, you know, people that were closest to you that you're sharing bunks with that you're not seeing anymore and you're having to pack up their belongings to send back to their families. It made you think, you know, is this going to be my belongings tomorrow that someone's going to have to pick up? And you really start to, you know, your, your, your morale and motivation starts to drop and it dips big time. If one of your other platoon mates had said, instead of saying, hey, I want to stay and fight, it said, no, I want to go home. What would you have, what would your reaction have been back then? 
I think I would have completely understood it, especially if, if they had a family. Um, but as a single guy, I knew I had nothing back there that was holding me back from bringing me home. Um, I, I knew I wanted to get my combat stripes. I wanted to be there and experience the rest of it. I thought we only had a few months left. Uh, it was supposed to be a short deployment, but we ended up getting extended twice. So, I mean, there were people that had some mental health issues that took the high road and decided to go back because of their mental health. And I, I, I at that time, I, I did. I looked at them you know, down, I, I looked at him, you know, not in a good way, um, thinking, how can these cowards do this? But then, you know, I didn't think of mental health back then as a big thing as I do now. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so you get back there two weeks later and you're back in the fight. Is the intensity of any of the sort of day-to-day -day dying down at all? Not at all. No. Um, so from the time I got shot and then came back, we had already lost another another well, one more squad leader um who was shot in the groin and then our bravo company had lost two guys and it just kept making me think like what what all is this going to come to if i stay here what, what are we going to get ourselves into because the operations started ramping up for high value targets um the search and seizures of homes started ramping up and when that ramped up it made the local population even more angry at us which ramped up the fighting even more um just out of curiosity, you spend Christmas there, obviously. Yeah. Um, do you think it was your last Christmas you were ever going to see? I think so. Yeah, I didn't think I was going to make it past uh, past the New Year, probably. I mean, I just you know when it's when it's that level, and, and look, obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, and and you know I'm with you in a sense that I you know I I, I would have never thought of trying to leave early although some people who work for me wanted to leave early and i was more of the advocate of like if you don't want to be here just go home i'll, I'll yeah. figure it out without you like i don't have time to to deal with the emotions of this day to day <clears throat> go i'll sign the paperwork and get you out of here because yeah. i just you know I, I can't invest energy uh into this because it's taking energy away from what absolutely needs my energy and that's the mission and, and doing what we need to do while we're here um mm. you know but again i i i in hindsight, you look back on it, you know, you, you understand a lot more what that level of fear and what that level of hypervigilance does to you mm -hmm. on a daily basis. You're never, you're never cognizant of it while you're in it. Yeah. Um, and, and until you really learn what it does to you and understand, you know, how it makes your body react and what, what it triggers you. Yeah. You know, um, I, I think we're smarter towards it again. And I, I, I would even say this now, you know, I mean, I don't know if I would necessarily advocate for people to go home per se, um, if they didn't want to be in a combat zone, but in the same respect, the idea of taking a knee, I think is more yeah. come. you know, it's, it's one thing for you to come back after your injury, but two weeks later, it could have been, you, you could have waited a month. You could have waited a month and a half. And I don't think I would have looked any differently at you, um, to either, you know, get back in the fight or make a decision to leave. But, uh, you know, that whole sort of mental pause that we never took because it was always just whatever's next, get back in a fight kind of deal is also something that compounds a lot of that hypervigilance. Yeah. So um, you get through the new year. Uh, we fast forward here to February 2nd, 2007. Um, now, at this point in time, you guys have lost how many people? Like, do you, can you just guesstimate the number? Um, <clears throat> probably about 20, 25. Oh, just between KIA and WIA, right? Uh, so between wounded in action, uh, KI, we had lost about 15 already. Um, wounded in action, maybe about 30 already, 30, maybe a little bit more than 30, 40. That's, that's you know, 40% of your entire mm -hmm. Yeah. How are you guys still – were you getting replacements or were you just 
Um, so yeah, we did, we had reinforcements come in from an MP unit that would help us with our sector and it wouldn't help us with manpower. We we're still, you know, scheduled to go out and do our weekly patrol, our daily patrols week to week. And we would just go out with less vehicles. Um, instead of going out with four Humvees, we'd go out with two Humvees and two Bradleys where it was a skeleton crew. Um, because we, yeah, we were hurting on people. We we're starting to have to take people from headquarters who had no combat experience, uh, just stayed back at the talk, come out, and now they're doing dismounted patrols um, the next day. So we were we were we were really hurting on people. Uh, we actually had to disband a platoon because we were down to twelve people in the platoon, and those people went to the other platoon. So now we were down to two platoons in headquarters platoon. Um, <clears throat> just curious, did did the leadership ever sit down and talk to you guys and try to give you the motivational speech or no? So it happened. Um, there, there was a time, so we were actually one of the only units to pull a mutiny um, in a combat zone. And there was a unit, our, our second platoon had driven a Bradley fighting vehicle over a deep barrier IED that blew up the entire Bradley and killed all five guys inside. And then a month later, our Alpha company was driving down the same route and drove, same thing, Bradley drove over a deep barrier IED, killed all four guys inside. And we were told that we had to go react um, to help Alpha Company secure the area so they can get their Bradley out of there. And this was, you know, a couple of weeks after our Bradley got hit and our guys got killed. So we had a lot of guys that were going in and out of mental health, getting prescribed Ambien, whatever, you know, meds were given that were just ready to go out into the city and just kill everybody at this point. So when we were asked to go out, uh, our platoon sergeants, rather than trying to motivate us, it was more, hey, you have to do this. You don't have a choice. So a lot of squad leaders stood up and said, I'm not putting my guys back out of the fight. They're still trying to heal internally. Uh, we need to, you know, get their mental health straight, straightened away before we decide to send them back into combat. And it was looked at it as a mutiny. It was all over CNN. Um, and it didn't look too good. It got a lot of people fired and sent out of the platoon, um, which I guess is a good and bad thing. I'm, I'm Did anybody approach you ahead of time about what they were going to do? I knew what was going to happen. They, they came up to us and said, hey, they need us to react to Elf Company. You don't have to go. I completely understand. So pretty much everybody said, okay, well, I'm not going to go. And that got put back to headquarters and headquarters was told, hey, we have a platoon that's not going out. And it was disobeying orders. It was it was all over the place. Wow. I don't remember this. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like I, <laughs> I mean, I was probably because I'd, I'd only been home for about five or six months. So I probably was tuning a lot of this stuff out. Mm -hmm. um, in retrospect, right decision or wrong decision? I think it was the right decision because it led to a couple guys um, literally going out into the city and, you know, saw gunners just holding down the trigger, loading, unloading under every building window they could find, not knowing who was in the rooms, children, men, women, it didn't matter. They were just so frustrated at the situation that was going on. That was their only way to vent. And, you know, they had to be stripped of their weapons, put in a, a you know, a kitchen detail for the rest of the deployment. And it just really brought down morale. Um, I've seen, you know, there's a couple of other stories that, you know, folks I've interviewed on the show that have dealt with stuff like that, where the operational tempo, uh, and the amount of losses and, and the constant threat of losing your life, not even on a daily yeah. or hourly basis, um, how that, sh you know, kind of just sheds human decency away from you, right? It, yeah. it rips it from you because again, at that point, and it, it, it's one of those few things and I am not rationalizing or excusing their behavior per se. But unless you've been in that situation where you know that your life is completely at danger every single minute of every single day, and unless you've watched your friends, um, as you said, you know, 
go down, be carried yeah. out on stretchers, pack their stuff up, send it back, unless you've had to do this repeatedly. Um, you know, that reaction, while not correct, is somewhat understandable. If there's a fine line between right and wrong and understandable, mm -hmm. it's there. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's where leaders have to step in yeah. and mitigate those things from happening. So that isn't on the on the individual soldier with the saw gunner. That's on the leadership for putting him in those positions where mm -hmm. only bad things come from the result. Yeah. Uh, and that that, you know, that's that's frustrating to hear because and again, I, you know, I'm not going to Monday morning quarterback this thing. Uh, you lived through it. I didn't. So you'll have a better understanding of it. But however, I, I would just say in general, you know, if the leaders aren't in tune, if the leaders are so just, yes, ma'am, no, sir, I'll do whatever you want me to do mm -hmm. you know, without ever sitting there saying, hey, we need to reevaluate where we're going here. Yeah, All right? You're getting a lot of people hurt and a lot of people killed and, and this is not working. And, and either you come up with a new plan or, you know, somebody else steps in and has to come up with a new plan. Um, yeah. You know, that that to me is is kind of where a lot of this stuff gone went, went sideways. Right. Um, when, when it's just orders roll downhill and we just start saying yes, nonstop, no matter who it affects and everything else. Did you feel like through all this? And again, we got to get to 2007, what happened to you, but, uh, or, or February of 2007, but did you feel like you guys were actually making a difference or this was just getting you nowhere? You were banging your head against the wall. We were banging. At first I thought we were, cause you know, we'd come around, come across the local populace. The kids were smiling at us. They were happy. We're giving them out food and, and toys and stuff like that. But then in return, they would use those toys and pack them with explosives, leave them on the side of the road. And that would be the next IED for the night. Um, so yeah, it was very frustrating and, I didn't, I lost hope pretty quickly about why we were, why we were there. When you lost hope, did you, did it make your mental condition worse for you personally? No, thankfully I didn't really have any mental health issues. Those, those sparked up years down the road, um, long after combat, which I'm still dealing with today, but then it was more of just, you know, I need to focus on getting back to the base so I can eat a hot meal and sleep and just wake up and pray nothing happens the next day. So February 2nd, 2007, um, you guys are heading out on another patrol. Give me kind mm -hmm. of the background. Yeah, so we were um, heading out on, heading on another patrol. It was two Bradleys and three Humvees. Um, of course, our Bradleys only had high explosive rounds. They took, a, took away the armor piercing because they were going through too many buildings and collateral damage. So we knew the Bradleys weren't too effective. Um so we were coming down the road and nothing like a 15 ton paperweight. Yeah, thanks. exactly. That's all it was. <laughs> and an IED went off to the, I was the second Humvee. So when Humvee, uh, Bradley, Humvee, 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 Bradley, and uh, IED went off the first near the first Bradley. And I was the first Humvee. So I was right behind it. Uh, the Bradley were between the ID and uh, the Bradley. And uh, I noticed in the woods, we started taking, receiving fire. And I noticed in the woods, there was a couple heads bobbing up and down and, then we drove a little bit more and then second ID went off and I saw them get up and they were starting to grab bags. And one of them had an AK, AK slung over his shoulder. And that's when I engaged him and it ended up being the trigger man in his watch out. Uh, but as we kept driving, there was um, another ID went off and it knocked my 240 off the mount um, from the concussion. And then uh, thankfully I was able to grab my M4 because that's when guys started filtering out of buildings, you know, enemy militia. I wouldn't know exactly which terrorist organization, but the en enemy militia were focused, you know, filing out of the building, trying to duck into the woods to recover their two guys that were down. Um, we were able to eliminate them as well. And thankfully, no Americans got hurt, but we ended up taking out seven terrorists um, with little to minimal loss of vehicles. Um, 
when you look back on that, um, how much did kind of training and everything play into it? Um, did it did it go the way you you always would thought it went based off of your no, <laughs> no, I thought it would. Uh, so when my when my weapon was thrown off the mount, um, I immediately just wanted to pucker up and just sit down in the turret and not move because you just hear the ting 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 the rounds hitting. But I knew that if we didn't engage, you know what kind of situation we would be in. So I was able to grab my M4, intermittently pop up, fire off rounds. Um, we used whatever we had, hand grenades. We were just throwing it all at them. You know, um, look, I've I've said repeatedly, and I'm just kind of curious for you um, that you know when you go to combat regardless of what you do yeah. and what you have experienced, the person you were before dies, right? You're never, you're never going to be the same again. That gets sort of ratcheted up exponentially. Look, I mean, we can all sit on a range and, and hit a piece of paper. We can all sit on a range and watch that little green silhouette fall down. Um, when it's real and you do that, there's still a different level of, of um, a different level of humanity and, and it's just a different component, right? Mm -hmm. Um in retrospect, in those moments, you probably weren't affected by any of it. Does some of that still stay with you? A little bit. Um, there were some situations, yeah, where I, I, I shot out some 203 rounds and it injured some civilians and, or something like that. And I would just I'd really get in my head about it, thinking, did I fire it at the right people? Or, you know, I'll, I'll go back and thinking, did I need to do this or do that? But in reality, well, I think everything I did saved lives. Yeah, well, and, and look, that's the, that's the that's the obvious rationalization of it, right? Yeah. It's like them or me. That doesn't mean it doesn't have an effect on you, right? I mean, you know, yeah. um, it's the same way, theoretically speaking. You know, uh, you're, you're you're a father, like, you know, if if you see your kid drowning in a pool, you jump in and save him. Yes, you did the right thing, but still, there's that always that every time you see water that's going to creep into yeah. the back of your head, that's always going to keep you on alert. Um, you know, and, and in those moments, I mean, in a sense, you know. Uh, you get you get awarded the bronze star with valor for that in those moments did it feel like it was valorous no it didn't at all um i mean thankfully i was able to eliminate the enemy where they stood um and, and react the way i did but yeah i do think if i didn't hadn't gone through enough training before that i don't think i would have reacted the same um if i didn't have a squad leader down in the trucks you know screaming at me hitting my leg get back up there get back up there i probably would have just stayed there um so i had great leadership in, in that moment that pushed me to go where i went and and take care of the, you know take care of the enemy was any of it, any of it like an out of body out of body experience for you? Like you now said, that I think about it, yeah, yeah. And you're like, okay, I'll just do that. That makes sense. Exactly. When I heard the tinging of the rounds, you know, bouncing off the the turret, I didn't want to stand back up. But when I stood up, it just kind of stopped, and I didn't hear anything. It was just my weapon engaging the enemy, and that's all I heard. I didn't pay attention to anything else happening around me. Um, but when it was all over, it was a surreal experience to go back and think about. When you got back to base, what did anybody say to you? Did the platoon sergeant say anything to you? Um, it was more of the squad leaders and the, the young Joes who were coming up, patting you on the shoulder, like, holy shit, man, that was that was badass. I couldn't believe this happened, you know, and, and you're not even registering that that even happened, what they're talking about at the moment. It's like, it's all just a quick flash in front of your eyes. And I'm sure the rest of the day was fairly normal. I got back, had a hot meal, went back to your Exactly. Bunk, yeah, back. went back out one more time. Like, like, like it never <laughs> happened, right? Um, yeah. Now, again, this is still what are we six months into your deployment? Yeah. All this has happened already. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when that one happens and, and you survive it, d does your morale go up a little bit or does it stay low just because it's like, well now, Hey, I almost died again. 
Uh, it definitely went up. The I'd say the adrenaline is what shot it up. Um, the morale went up. Everybody was looking forward to going back out again because we were expecting some sort of action. Um, but yeah, it, it it does kind of go down because you're thinking, what's this going to do to everybody's psyche? And it affected some people pretty badly. Some people couldn't handle it um, and refused to go back out or asked to go on, you know, take the shift off and go out another patrol because it affected them so much. So it, I think depending on the person, yeah, it affected everyone differently. Why? Uh, why do you think it affected people who didn't have as big a role in the whole thing the way you did differently? I don't know. That's a good question. Um, they might have might have had a family. Um, they were they're a little bit more afraid to go back out because of that, uh, or maybe something like that's never happened to them before. And now that they saw it unfold, now oh shit, yeah, is like me. Is it going to happen to me next? I mean, this is the second time you've mentioned that guys are exercising their own. I guess, you know, rights to say, Hey, I'm not going back out. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, I've been doing, doing this military thing for almost a quarter of a century and, and, you know, might be able to count on like one hand, the number of times I really thought, well, I'm not doing that, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And I never acted, you know, in a sense where when I said, I'm not doing it, my next step was to go talk to the person who gave me the order and have a conversation and say, you know, but I mean, it, it seems sort of odd that there is this overwhelming feeling like they have the autonomy to not do it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, did, did any of that set in, in those moments? Like all of a sudden you guys just have this ability to say, no, nah, I'm not going out. I'm not going out again. Uh, it was starting to get a little bit more frequent. Uh, we would, we'd go out with, we started to go out with skeleton crews because we were losing so many guys. Um, our dismounted patrols turned into mounted patrols and we would just drive around more presence patrols to showing them, Hey, we're still here unless we had an actual set mission going house to house. But yeah, it would give everybody more of a break to sit back and, and kind of get an extra hot meal, maybe a hot shower, a couple extra hours of sleep and then go back out again. But once we started rotating, everybody's morale seemed to go back up because uh, they knew we didn't have to go out. 12 hours a day. Um, it was now maybe six hours a day and you had more time to sit back and kind of think about everything. Was that good or bad that you had more time to think about it? It was, it was good and bad. Cause it drove some people, I would say crazy. Uh, like a couple guys, you know, threatened to take their lives. Um, they were thinking about it more, um, especially if they were on the cleanup crew of the vehicles that came back when they were hit, having to clean the blood out and everything. Those guys were definitely affected. When you hear that, when, when I hear that, I, I were you the type of guy? Because I am, I'm, I'm torn between the, the whole, yeah, I get it, mm-hmm. I understand how that was going to rock your mind and how it's going to throw you into a whirlwind. But on the other hand, there's still the part of me that wants to grab it by the collar and be like, lock it up. Yep. Still a mission to do. Get your head out of your ass and let's go. Um, where did you reside on that spectrum? I just, I put my head down between my legs, just drowned everything else out. Um, I think I was more mission oriented by that point. Uh, now that we were losing guys, my main mission was to not lose it anymore. And so I would volunteer to drive more, even though the drivers were typically known to, you know, get blown up more, um, driving over the IEDs that they didn't see or, or whatever it might've been. Um, but I just, I tried to pick up the tasks that people didn't want to do. So people's morale would shoot up. Um, try, I guess, try to be more of the team player. That's when, I, I think I really started to transform as a person. In what way? In, into a better, more of a leader type uh, aspect. Yeah. yeah. Um, did you start to gain more trust from team leaders? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I got, I got promoted to team leader at that end of that deployment pretty quickly. Um, and then our next deployment, I was, I was able to be a squad leader, but from then 
then and there, um, I think I gained a lot of trust between, you know, a lot of the guys I deployed with from our first and second deployment. You finished that first deployment. Uh, <clears throat> I, I assume it's a huge sense of relief. Yeah. But in the same respect, you get off that plane and there's a lot less people walking off that plane that then walked on. Yeah. Um, do you process any of that at that point in time? I did. It was pretty rough um, because we knew we were having a memorial ceremony in Germany. All the families were coming out and that was going to be hard to face the parents and brothers and sisters of your friends that you lost because we didn't really deal with it yet. We always had a running joke of like, what if we're just in this big reality show and these people are just being voted off? We're not seeing them again. And then when we get home, we're going to see them all again and just stupid stuff to try and take our minds off it. But I think, you know, being in Germany, the whole alcohol effect came in. And people really started to drown their feelings in the bottle um, and not really seek help. So it was pretty tough getting back. Did you? Absolutely. Yep. Uh, in retrospect, needed and justifiable or <clears throat> terrible decision? The drinking? Yeah. It was a terrible decision. In what sense? Um, so I got an article 15 for <laughs> for drinking and doing stupid stuff and just not showing up the formation because I was too drunk. But when I go think about it now, I was, I was really just trying to drown out the pain and the numbness. And I think being drunk made me feel a little bit more alive, although it was hindering my work, um, which gave me the article 15. Uh, but a lot of guys, they related to drugs, resulted to drugs. They were, you know, pissing hot, getting kicked out of the army. And I started to see that. And I was like, okay, that's not the route I want to go. Did, um, did you ever think about approaching anybody in your leadership? And telling them, you know, hey, um, drinking right now is the only thing from saving me going down a road that I, I don't want to go down. Uh, were those conversations ever thought about? No, before? it wasn't because we were drinking with our leadership too. It, it was oh. we, weekly barbecues, <laughs> Friday night fight nights in our common areas, boxing matches, and it was all it was just a big party every weekend. So we thought that was the only way to, I guess, cope. And you were always looking forward to Friday or four day weekends. So we can go party with your friends. We weren't really thinking about getting help. Um, and after my article 15, I was, I was kind of shunned a little bit by my leadership. So I didn't really have any trust in going to them yet until I could build back that trust. How quickly do you get to your next deployment? Um, about nine months later, we deployed again. Um, and going into that thinking it's going to be like that first deployment was pretty awful. Everybody was, was, pretty anxious um you know the training we we prepared for was definitely a lot more training than the first deployment because we were expecting to go into the same thing going back to iraq and thankfully it wasn't it was a pretty relaxed deployment um well before we get to the relaxed deployment uh <laughs> yeah uh I, i'm just kind of curious um you know the the old and i forget what philosopher said it i'll paraphrase it here but you know you could send any man, man into battle once, but asking him to go back in twice might, is usually too much for them to bear. Um, you survived this first one. Did you think you were going to die on the second one? Yeah, I, I definitely thought it was of a possibility. And at that point, I was married um, and uh, freshly game married. Changer. Game changer. Yes. So leaving was a little bit harder. Um, and I didn't know what to expect. I knew we were going to be getting into the same situation, same area in the Iraqi, you know, type cities. Um, so I was expecting a lot of resistance and my mentality going into that deployment was, you know, survivor or, or nothing. That was it. I, I knew I had to survive about anything I did there. It was, I had to get back home. Where in Baghdad did you go the second time? Uh, so the second time we went to, it was called the old ministry of defense. I forget the name of the town, but it wasn't near Baghdad. It was like an hour or so away. Okay. Yeah. North, right? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I'm, I'm fairly familiar with where you are. Um, and this one was a lot quieter. Why? It was. Um, I think at that point they had what they called the sons of Iraq. They were formerly known terrorists who were getting paid by the government to man checkpoints and security points when in, in turn, it didn't really work out for them. Uh, there was a lot of corruption, but oh. I think we were just put into an area where it wasn't high population. Our mission was a little bit different. Uh, we were more focusing on infrastructure of, you know, fisheries and making sure that the cities were had sewage and running water and all this stuff versus trying to build population or a relationship with the population going house to house. We rarely did that. Um, we rarely left our vehicles actually whenever we left the gate. So it, it was completely different. Did you, um, did you, when you guys got there the second time, what month and year is it? Uh, 2008 and i believe it was mid 2008 okay yeah um, yeah and, and to a certain extent th things were starting to die down after yeah. that overall. <clears throat> um but did was that was there a part of you that you know and as that deployment kicks off things are a lot slower is there a part of you that sort of wishes they were faster i did uh but thankfully i had a squad leader a new squad leader that firmly believed in physical fitness. So we were, we were doing PT on the base every single day. Um, my, my, I was smoking cigarettes. I quit everything. My habits were changing. I was more into looking into leadership books. He got me into reading the Ranger handbook when I didn't even know what that was at the time. Oh. So that second deployment was more focused on, I guess, self-development, personal development. Do you at this point recognize how much you've changed? Um, I did for sure. I knew how much I, I think a big shift was after that article 15, because I had a lot of leaders looking down on me and I knew I had to change that perspective of who I was. So I started stepping up more volunteering to go to these boards, the NC with a quarter board year board, um, whatever schools I can get my hands on. And I was, I was always volunteering to work on the weekends. So I definitely grew grace with our leadership by that point. Uh, get yourself in a hole, dig yourself yeah. out. Right. Yeah. Um, so nothing of real consequence happens on that deployment? Uh, I mean, we didn't lose any guys, thankfully. Um, unfortunately, a couple of suicides. Um, oh, really? Like in-country? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they're they were in their little chew and, just, you know, barrel to the mouth, pull the trigger kind of thing. Um, and then a couple after deployment as well. Guys hung, hanging themselves in the barracks. Um, but these are guys that never even experienced combat. This is their first deployment, still right. didn't experience combat, and and somehow they're they're taking their lives. Any, in your opinion, not medical, um, any of that sort of transference part of it, you know, this is a unit that had went through so much with so many people who had fought for their lives, incredibly hard and difficult and had been through hell and back. Mm -hmm. Um, and you talk about the morale and the tension at times and things that were going on. Is there, is there any sense that those guys who had never been there bore some of that pressure that you guys were feeling? I, I definitely know they did. Um, they were getting pushed extra hard when it came to training and PT, um, maybe a little too hard sometimes by their leadership because they were training them to prepare for what we dealt with the first deployment. You, although we didn't deal with any of that, the second deployment, they were definitely bearing the brunt of the, the, you know, the firmness of our leadership. They were a little, little extra firm on them. Yeah. Um, I'm curious from your perspective, you know, after watching so many guys, get hurt and killed from the hand of the enemy for one of your own to take their own life. Did that make you mad? It did. Um, it, it makes you frustrated because they had everything at their fingertips. We we're back in Germany. They were with their families and 
it was frustrating because you wish you could have done more. You wish you would have picked up signs or cues that something was going to happen. And you start to get mad at yourself a little bit. What about the guys who took their life down range? Like um, doing? I didn't know those guys. So oh, I, it, it was kind of a shocker to hear it, uh, but I didn't really know the guys. Got it. Yeah. Um, all right. So you get back from the second deployment um, all unscathed. What's next for you? Yeah, so halfway through that second deployment, we had a brigade competition um, to go to ranger school. The first, the top 20 out of brigade got to go, and it was out of, like a, I think, a ruck march, a five-mile run, push-ups, pull-ups, and a swim. And In, in, in Iraq, you were doing this. Yeah, yeah, uh, on a big base. Uh, we all drove to a big base, uh, and um, I came in sixth. So the top 20 got to go. We all staggered it out. So I actually went to ranger school Um when that deployment was coming to an end and I got done with ranger school by the time everybody got back. Ah. So at that point I was, I knew where I wanted to go. The stuff I had learned was pointing me in the direction I wanted to go with the Rangers. Um, and I knew that being in that unit in Germany probably wasn't for me anymore. What was the hardest part of ranger school for you? The no food, definitely not the no food. I lost 32 pounds in 60 days. So I, I was pretty skinny when I left and me, I can go no sleep all day, but when it comes to no food, I was sneaking crackers. I was sneaking anything I could possibly get my hands on berries in the woods. Yeah. That's the way to do it. Um, that's uh, interesting to say the least. Uh, I mean, again, you, you, you pass this other, another crucible of ranger school, which is incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, what was more difficult for you, do you think, uh, surviving that first deployment or getting through ranger school? I would say uh, more difficult, definitely that first deployment. Uh, ranger school, I knew there was always an end. Uh, it's going to finish, and I'm going to come out alive. Do you think you would have passed ranger school prior to going to your first deployment? Absolutely not. I actually went to do sniper selection and quit. <laughs> It was, it, they just smoked us for like two hours straight, and an hour into it, I was like, you know what? This isn't for me. I don't want to do this. <laughs> <laughs> but then I look back at him like I was such an idiot. Why? Just because I know I, I had what it took to push through it, but my mental capacity wasn't there yet. I didn't, I thought I just, it was just a little opportunity that wouldn't equate to much. But now I look back at, I could have been on the sniper team, gone to sniper school, done all this stuff. And I, I quit, you know, I don't want to be a quitter. How proud of a, a moment was that for the Ranger tab? It was extremely proud. Um, my parents came in, my dad pinned the Ranger tab on my shoulder. Um, he was crying because he saw how far I'd come being a troubled teen, having an awful relationship with him. It kind of sealed some things up a good bit with him. Uh, it, it was awesome. Was there any sort of, um, for the parent, for, for your mother who didn't want you to join the army, was there any sort of, not like, I'm sorry, son, so to speak, but a little bit of a, Hey, you made the right choice. I'm proud of you kind of deal. For Absolutely. Mom? Still to this day, she says she's proud of me. Um, she still thinks back. We were just sharing stories the other day about, the trouble I was getting into. And she was just like, I, I didn't want you to be my son at that point. And now she's like, I'm so proud of how far you've come and what you've done. That's awesome. That's yeah. amazing. That's great stuff. That's awesome. Um, so you get this, this Ranger tab. Now, now that you're a Ranger, do you, do you want to go back to combat again? Absolutely. Yeah. And then I wanted to get more. Um, my tongue was wet. I was definitely thirsty for more and I wanted to get in any school I possibly could get in. Um, and that's when I knew, at that point, I was like, okay, well, maybe maybe going to Fort Benning would be an option, going to the Ranger Regiment. Um, I knew their deployment cycle, what it was like. And the only thing as I was getting warned about is going into Ranger Regiment as a high, not high ranking, but a more senior enlisted um, soldier, it wouldn't be looked at as the same as their E4s, E3s that grew up in Regiment uh, from a young age. So that was pretty tough. 
why do we do that in the army? Um, I don't know why we do stuff like that. I mean, nothing is cookie cutter. Yeah. Get it right. I, I get it, but I don't get it. Like yeah. I get it, you know, uh, and, and I've had this conversation several times about, you know, the army that you and I grew up in is not the army that is today. And that's no, okay because absolutely not. you're supposed to progress. <laughs> Everything is supposed to change. Things are supposed to go forward. Mm-hmm. That's all okay. Um, but the idea that it makes you any less of a ranger, any less of a soldier, any less competent of a leader because you didn't grow up in it, it's just, it, it's just silly. It's, yeah. it, not, not everybody has to do the same exact thing. And there are no two military careers that ever follow the same exact path. Exactly. So, you know, the, I, I you know, I hear that. I'm just like, oh, that there's, there's some old school sort of archaic draconian mentality there that's uh, a little bit useless at this point in time. Yeah. You got there. Did you feel like you were treated a little bit differently? Absolutely. I had I had E4s coming up to me to tell me to go pick up cigarette butts as an E6. Um, the squad, other squad leaders would joke around, have E3s come up, tell me to drop and do pushups. And if I dropped their soldiers, they'd just tell them to get right back up as like a little F you to me. So it, it took about six months to really start to build relationships with guys. Uh, I think some guys started to feel bad for me a little bit because <clears throat> I wasn't getting invited out to go to the bars. I wasn't getting invited to go do these different things that other guys were doing. And I would just kind of keep to myself, which really wore on my mental health, I think, um, which actually led to a suicide attempt. If you could say something to those guys now, what would you say? Look at me now. <laughs> Good, good, good answer. Um, let me try to rephrase that question. Yeah. Is there, do you, do you have any closure as to why they treated you like they did when in reality there was no reason for it? Yeah. I mean, I knew it was all part of the hazing, um, but some guys were taken a little too far, but I, I do look back at it and think they were just trying to get me a part of the brotherhood, but give me a little bit harder time. They didn't start with them. Um, but I didn't look at it like that at that time. And they thought it was all fun and games, um, but I don't have any hard feelings against them. You mentioned your mental health was starting to south. Were you able to recognize it while it was happening? Absolutely. Um, it, it was pretty bad. I, I got a DUI. Uh, the drinking picked up. And we were training constantly, so it was straining on my marriage. Uh, I would say we're training three weeks out of the four weeks out of the month. So we're never really around. And if it was a weekend, we were always at the drop zone. So I started drinking a lot more. And then my ex-wife ended up leaving, um, taking my kid and things just went downhill. I stopped showing up to work, uh, just drinking every single day. And it, it turned out to be pretty bad. You mentioned a, a suicide attempt. Uh, you had seen some of your other, you know, soldiers and, mm-hmm. and squad mates uh, or had learned that they had the company mates had taken their own life. Um, it, it didn't, it didn't register to you not to do that. No, cause I just, I didn't, I didn't want to look at that part. I just drowned it all out with alcohol. Uh, I drank as much as I could, as fast as I could. So I wouldn't have to do much decision-making and it led to some pretty poor decisions on my part. Uh, you know, again, att- attempted suicide on four bedding when I'm supposed to be going to work to having my unit and the MPs, you know, pounding on my door, come and find me passed out in a pile of vomit with, you know, a loaded gun in my hand and all sorts of stuff. It was, and then from there on out from the rest of my time in the service, it was pretty bad. I got back to regiment, um, they were getting ready to deploy. They deemed me unfit. They kicked me out, put me over at the Ranger Training Battalion, um, where I was a Ranger instructor. And even then, still dealing with my mental health, I, I couldn't comprehend my job, what I was supposed to do, learning to become a leader, to be a, you know, a Ranger instructor at one of these most prestigious schools in the military. I just couldn't, it wouldn't register with me. So I was still in the ways of drinking, uh, not showing up to work. But thankfully, the drinking stopped. 
um, I was able to really get myself back together and accomplish some pretty good things after that. I just had a great support system. Once I got to the Ranger Training Battalion, these guys looked out for me. They saw the signs, got me mental health um, assistance and stuff like that. Um, you know, I wonder, I mean, like, I hear you tell me all that, and I'm curious as to if you had recognized in those moments that or, or even now, do you connect what had happened to you to combat into putting you into that mental state? It was were any of those connected for you at the time? Absolutely, yeah. Oh, okay. um, so I was diagnosed with PTSD in 2012, and that's when I think all the symptoms started showing up, of you know just all this anxiousness, uh, constantly being hyper alert, and I, d I definitely think it was brought back to those those moments. You started low, you went high, you got low, you went high, you got low. Mm -hmm. I mean, are you, are you tired of this roller coaster yet for you? I am. Yeah, I knew I knew I was going to I was going through a medical board. Um, I broke my my heel on an airborne jump, had to have surgery on a bad landing. And the ranger instructors pretty much said, hey, we're just going to stick you in operations during your med board. Um, so I got I got to see a lot of different good things going on there. And it, it kind of raised my hope a little bit. Just, I wanted to stay in and I was going to try to go back to Germany Um but once they said you're going to get med boarded out, I just looked at it as, okay, you know, how am I going to start working towards a civilian transition then uh, learning everything I've just recently learned? Because, yeah, I went from the going to all these schools, jumping out of airplanes, doing all this cool stuff to next thing, you know, hey, you're going to be getting out in like six months. Um, how do you characterize your military career in retrospect? Um. <laughs> Well, I got out honorably, but there oh, was yeah. no, yeah, I, I wasn't saying that. I mean, yeah. you know, it wasn't, it was more of like the, the roller coaster I just detailed for you. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was a bumpy road for sure. Yeah. I bet the highs are pretty high and the lows are pretty low. Mm -hmm. uh, so in that vein, how do you characterize it? Not like I thought you had been put out for bad reasons or anything. No. Um, I mean, I, I definitely think I could have done better. There was times where I definitely thought I should have seeked help when I didn't. So the times when I wasn't seeking help were my low points, but I just kept to myself. And I definitely wished I would have reached out more and gotten the help I needed because it could have been a much more smoother path if I would have reached out the help than I, I didn't. Loaded question here. Uh, any regrets while in uniform? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is some dumb stuff we, we all did. Um, well, yeah, but I mean, look, everything happens in order for a reason, right? Like, to, not yeah. to be cliche, but, you know, it's one of those things like, hey, if you're not getting in trouble with the law, you're probably not in the military. Yeah. If you're not in the military, then you don't have to deal with almost losing your life yeah. nonstop and then getting these awards. And then if you don't <laughs> do all that, you don't get put to ranger school. And if you don't get put to ranger school, you don't have to train all this stuff, have your divorce happen, start training. Like, you know the all these dots are connected for you yeah so when i say any regret i mean is there yeah i is there one low point you regret more than another i regret getting married in germany <laughs> <laughs> i should have just stayed single um no but I, I i do i regret a lot of the drinking that i was doing because that was a coping mechanism that you know i, I saw my dad grow up doing and i thought that, that it was just the way to you know handle everything you're going through but I do think, yeah, if I just would have stayed off the alcohol, um, I wouldn't have gotten in trouble like I did. And I would have been on a more straight and narrow path. For the record, I think there might be 50% of America who regrets getting married, regardless of where it happened. <laughs> might be a whole yeah. different conversation for a different day. Neither here nor there. Um, <laughs> where are you with alcohol right now? I'm great. No. Um, 
so there was a time earlier this year uh I, I i spent a week in a mental hospital i don't talk about it much not a lot of people know about it but now it's okay i'm, I'm at peace with it um i was i was off my meds for a few days and it messed me up um so i decided to get some drinks and it just brought me down a rabbit hole of thoughts of my deployment all the guys that we left behind and i ended up stabbing myself six times um okay i mean what is your relationship with alcohol right now it's it's fine it's non-existent really i, I mean if anything i'll have a couple i'll get a six pack and it maybe lasts a week have a beer here two beers here but i don't touch hard, hard alcohol my wife doesn't allow it well that's good good for her it is smart, um, yeah so you got out uh, and you had a bunch of different jobs, all kind of military related, yeah. right? I mean, you were a SEER instructor mm-hmm. at Fort Rucker, which again, I I, I wish I would have known about that school sooner. Yeah. That's the only school I regret not being able to go to in the military. That's the one I wanted to go to. You can keep Ranger School, you can keep the Q course. Yeah. Keep, I just want to go to SEER school and they'd never send me anymore because I'm too old. But um, that's the one I think that like right up there after AIT, mm-hmm. now everybody should go to SEER school. Yep. If they could figure out a way to do that on the whole that's the course i think everybody should go to it was an amazing course uh definitely a gentleman's course and it was a course as being on the civilian side as a contractor to to go through that and actually train these soldiers it was it was surreal it was awesome yeah Yeah. um because again that's one look i know that ranger school and everything else they test your physical and your mental um and there are a certain component of people who just can't handle the physical Mm -hmm. Uh, but I think SEER school to a certain extent pushes your mental limits to places where um, it's more, not everybody's going to be stuck on a mountaintop in the side of like your job in the military just doesn't call for it. But IE let's just, you know, any average joke can get captured by the enemy in the wrong spot. doesn't matter what your MOS is. And that SEER training probably provides them with a better skill set than necessarily being able to survive nine weeks of ranger school, mountain phase and swamp phase and everything else. Right. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. so I, just my two cents on, it. I always say it when everybody comes on, um, you ended up being a technical advisor in the film industry. How do you stumble on this whole thing? Yes. Yeah, so that's when I got out, um, out of the military, I was, I was trying to figure out, I was in the process of getting my resume built. I didn't know what I was going to do for work. I knew it was going to be in the government sector on the civilian side, um, for the, for the army or something, something of that manner. And as I was looking for jobs, I was just growing through Facebook, a friend of mine, Posted a, a job, uh, a movie that was looking for military extras. And I was like, yeah, I, I, I'm still fresh shaved, got a fresh haircut. Why not? So I signed up and I was an extra on this movie for like, I don't know, three weeks. And my wife's pretty much saying like, hey, you know, are you going to get a job that's going to pay the bills? Because this $8 an hour type thing isn't working out for you. Uh, so thankfully, that's when Sear rolled around. Uh, so when I was down at Sear school, I had gotten a call from... Uh, I thought it was Black Panther, the movie Black Panther. And they said, hey, we, we just got your name recommended from a military advisor up here. He he's highly recommends you. And we're looking for a, a TA to come up and work this film. So I take the day off from Sears School. I go up to Atlanta and come to find out it's Pitch Perfect 3. Um, so I go from thinking I'm going to work on Black Black Panther to this movie about girls singing acapella. And I'm just thinking, like, how in the world are they going to incorporate military in this? Um, but they said they wanted me. Um, I made the decision to quit the job at Sears School, move back to Atlanta. Uh, so they said it was going to be full time. 
and it just took off from there it, i just started working one movie to the next movie just got recommended here and there started training actors on the side tactics um it whatever it, whatever it was tv shows films uh commercials i was there and the ball was rolling for a really long time and my wife said you gotta you gotta settle down a little bit we don't see you anymore you know you leave when the kids are, are sleeping you get home when the kids are sleeping you know they need their dad um and that's where i found the warrior alliance uh started working for them um a couple of things one obviously the movie you were re- referencing was pitch perfect right yeah pitch perfect three yeah yeah, the one they filmed right there at the hangar in, uh, in Marietta. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, so I, I coordinated all the uniforms. They got DOD support from the movie. So all the uniforms had to be 100% accurate. Oh, they had all the different branches there. So I was putting together dress uniforms day and night, trying to square away people who's never worn the uniform before, which is pretty frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. Uh, that's a but big, big pitch perfect fan across all three. I'm not going to lie. I have no shame about it. <laughs> Pitch perfect is cinematic excellence. Don't argue with me. Don't at me. Don't don't do any of that stuff. Anyway, um, by the way, you know, in all this, when did you get remarried and, and have more children? I can't, you- yeah, so I got remarried in 2014. Um, I would say my wife dug me out of the trenches for sure. She pulled me through a lot. Um, she, she, if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be here. Uh, I'd, I'd probably be dead. So having her be able to be my support system and pick me up and really guide me to these, these goals that I was working towards and always support me through the way. Um, that was great because she was stuck through it all. When I went through my lows, she's still here today, still fighting for me. Um, best decision I've ever made. Um, you mentioned the warrior Alliance where you work now, uh, incredible organization, uh, just kind of your day-to-day responsibilities there. Yeah. So, um, I'm the manager of military outreach at the war Alliance, So I get to go to the military bases all over Georgia and speak to soldiers, airmen, Navy, whatever branch they're in, who are going to transition when they're typically 180 days out. So I get to go to these bases and let them know what resources are available to them in their local community that they're moving to get them connected to these resources, make sure their families are squared away all the resources that they have now that we didn't have then. Yeah. Which, which obviously uh, helps. Yeah. What do you get out of personally helping veterans now? Uh, it feels good because I was once in their position um, and I always wanted to know how to pull myself out of that position. And I didn't at that time. So recognizing what these soldiers are going through now and knowing what's there for them to be able to put it in front of them and say, hey, here's your cards that you're dealt. You know, this is what you're going to use to get there. You know, your goals that you're achieving. Um, it's it's definitely rewarding. It's 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 awesome. Uh, I know that you also have been in other other movies as well. Did the did the time working with Pitch Perfect three did that parlay into? Absolutely, yeah. So what, it, working what on Pitch IMDb Perfect three look like. <laughs> uh, so I've gotten to work on some cool ones. Got to teach The Rock how to repel out of a helicopter for Skyscraper while we were working on Rampage. Um, so I got to work on that movie with them, which sent me over to Avengers. I got to work on Avengers Endgame, do some stunts, and coordinate some military uh, scenes, which ended up getting me a SAG award uh, for that. That's pretty cool um worked on all the stranger things as a tactical advisor um the new shaft movie you know all sorts of different things and it's still i still get to work on them today which you know my job allows me to do let's have a quick word about military movies uh just out of curiosity we've had several people who have been in movies on the show we've had directors we've had writers and actors and everything else um where do you stand on hollywood bastardizing military movies for drama and effect and straying from factual reference 
I think it's pretty upsetting. Um, I tried to sell a TV show myself off our first deployment and to see how much they wanted to dramatize it and not actually stick to the facts. It's pretty frustrating because you want to get the true story out. And then by the time different people get their hands on it, writers, directors, producers, actors, it completely changes and eschews to their version, which is no longer the truth. Uh, so it's, it's pretty frustrating. Yeah. Well, that's what this show is for. Just stick to the facts, right? Yeah. Um, sorry. I don't have a whole, you know, entourage behind me, so to speak, but regardless, uh, I, I kid, you know, I, and again, I'm, I'm with you. I, I think we all, to a certain extent, just want the facts represented the right way, yeah. you know? Um, and look, you can't take a, a, eight hour day of patrols and put it into a 90 minutes or even exactly. two hours yeah. and fit everything in there accurately. So there are some liberties that they have to take. Um, you know, and I've said this, uh, and, and I always kind of gauge the level of realism, particularly what I care more about is the level of realism in the combat scenes, right? Cause any of us who have been through combat and it know, you know, that experience, I just want you to do that part right more than anything. And when mm -hmm. you do it right, you know, I know I, I my body knows because it has a visceral reaction. I could feel my heart start to race. I could feel my pulse start to go up and my hands start to shake a little bit because it's bringing me yeah. back into those moments, right? Like that to me is when I know they hit the sweet spot of combat because it, for me at least, it sort of draws me physically back into that that mode like, hey, this is actually going on. Mm -hmm. That and one sense. thing I learned about that, it's it's mainly the stunt coordinators who's facilitating all these different combat scenes. And a lot of these stunt coordinators don't have any military experience whatsoever. And, you know, they trump what the military advisor says. So sometimes there would be recommendations that I would give that would get tossed right out the window and they would go with the stunt coordinators um, cue and it would turn out completely wrong and they would end up putting it in the movie. So it is frustrating. Yeah, why would you? You didn't go like, what the hell did you ask me here for if you're not going to take my advice? Oh, I have. I have. But you got to be, you got to walk on a very thin line in the industry. Uh, yeah, I guess if you'd like to stay in the industry, right? Yeah. <clears throat> circle of trust, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, just to go back to the Warrior Alliance, uh, just an incredible resource with tons of uh, resources at their disposal. They're based here in Atlanta, folks, but they they can help soldiers out, veterans out all across the country, right? It's mm -hmm. not just it's not just locally. They have a ton of resources at their disposal, uh, resources I've used before, um, and and highly re recommend you guys checking out the Warrior Alliance. Uh, you're also trying to become a Guinness Book of World Record holder. Boxing. I was, yeah. So recently, I tore my Achilles. Um, so before that, uh, I was I was into jumping all throughout middle school, high school, and I was just at a gym one day and I saw a box. And it was 30 inches and I just jumped up on it like it was no issue. So I, I Googled, what's the world record for freestanding box jump? And I saw it at the time. It was like 63 inches. And, you know, I measured it up. I stacked a bunch of plates and I just stood next to it. And I was like, I'm going to I'm going to hit this one day. Um, so three years go by. The world record's been broken two, three more times. So now it's up to, you know, 67 inches. But I got extremely close. So I was, I was four inches away. Um, and then I tore my Achilles earlier this year. So that's kind of sent me back. Wow. Yeah. You're going to try to go for it. After Absolutely. You? I'm still going to, I'm still strengthening it up right now. Man, my body would break. <laughs> it just, it would just break. It's fun to learn how to jump. Uh, it's definitely different. It's not your average workout. No, to say the least, it's not. Um, kind of curious if you could go back uh, and I ask this question a lot, but what's the, what's the one piece of advice Patrick Brown today would give to um the Patrick Brown the day before he enlisted in the army to try harder, not to quit. Um, I was always such a quitter back in the day because if things didn't work out in my favor, I feel like that was, 
it was, it was very frustrating and it just wasn't meant to be, but I would just give up so quickly without even really trying. And the military instilled into me that you have to try because if you don't try, you're going to fail and failure is not an option. Um, so now today I, I don't quit anything, whether I get injured, I keep pushing, uh, like my Achilles, for example, I keep pushing. Um, but that's it. Yeah. Don't quit. Try harder, do harder. Um, Anything you would, I, I know we've talked about some of the ups and downs, but anything specifically you'd like to do differently while in your time in uniform? Um, I definitely would have found, want, liked to have found a mentor. I didn't have a mentor throughout my service. Um, so I was kind of all over the place, different leadership styles. Uh, I, I was always try, told at a very young age, you just find a guy to connect with and, you know, pick his brain. I never did that because I was always afraid of my leadership versus wanting to learn from their experiences. Why? I think it was intimidation. I was always worried I was going to get yelled at or drop to do pushups. Um, I never looked at it as a mentorship type thing. So I was just, they're my leaders. They, they tell me what to do and I'll do it. And that was it. Uh, what's the one thing about, you know, uh, combat that stays with you the most to this day? Uh, definitely the smell, taste of blood. Um, anytime I, I get around like a hand of change in my pocket, I just I, I always randomly cup it and smell it because it just it reminds me of that irony that smell that taste it just it doesn't leave or anytime I bite into a steak it just reminds me of being deployed because um, we had the cheap ass little steaks that our cooks would cook up for us and just yeah any anytime I'm around a campfire to certain smells. What has been the hardest part for you um, with with PTS and and going through it? knowing that there is help and actually wanting to reach out to it. Uh, early this year, I didn't reach out to help and I waited till it was too late to reach out to help. Um, as I'm getting strapped onto a gurney to brought to a mental hospital to an ER, you know, gushing blood out of my leg, almost missed my artery by four mil or two millimeters. And just wish I knew there was help out there for other veterans that they could reach out to. Um, and when you feel something, reach out, don't wait, don't wait. Yeah. Um, are you worried you'll, for lack of a better term, sort of have another relapse? I mean, is that? I'm hoping I don't. Um, I, I'm taking my meds, which I'm prescribed. and But yeah, I'm, I'm doing everything I can right now to make sure that I'm working towards a better life, a, a better future. I mean, it, obviously, appearances can be deceiving. And obviously, you know, there is there's a lot to, um, there's a lot more than what you see initially when you meet people. Yeah. You know, and again, for what it's worth in, in my interactions with you, you know, I would have never pictured you anything other than as, as a stellar soldier, like, you know, the poster boy Yeah, <laughs> of, of what you want your NCOs to look like. Um, and hearing some of this, you know, again, it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a stark reminder that, you know, first of all, this stuff comes for all of us who have served equally. Yep. It's not discriminatory, right? Um, we all have to bear and, and live with our demons and, and live with PTS the way we have to. Um, and how that happens for everybody, it's not cookie cutter. It's not simple. It's not easy. Everybody deals with it differently. Yeah. Um, you know, but I would tell you that again, you know, in, in having this conversation with you, I, I can't help but, you know, you're the get knocked down seven, get up eight guy. Yeah. Always. You know, um, and that seems to have permeated out throughout your entire career. Um, do you feel like you've been given like a, you know, 
more chances than you might deserve at times? I think so. Yeah, I definitely look at it like that. Um, a cat with nine lives. I'm on, you know, 10 or 11 right now. And <laughs> I just wonder why, why me? Do you have an answer? Not yet. I'm still searching. Yeah. Well, um, I think the answer is because you have more to give. Yeah. Right? That's the, that's the simple answer that uh, the world ain't done with you yet. And neither are veterans and people who need help. Um, yeah. Because honestly, again, I, I, and, and you know, take this, you know, at face value. Um, I would think a lot of other people who meet you probably had the same presupposition about yeah. you that I did. And to see that you're human and to see yeah. that you're flawed and to see that you've made mistakes and that you've stumbled and you've gotten back up is the reason and the hope that others will do the same. Because if that guy can do it, then I can do it. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, you know, and, and the other part of it too is, you know, you think that everybody's got it all together and, and, and they don't, um, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. But it's also, again, that same reminder of, well, Hey, everybody's dealing with their own stuff. And again, I can do it too. Right. It, it's yeah. not hard for me to get over my struggles and my troubles um, with the right mindset. And I think that's what I take away from you uh, as part of the message and, and part of your story um, that I think is absolutely worthwhile and, and, and incredible to share. So thank you for that. I, I definitely, I, yeah, absolutely. I certainly appreciate you doing it. Um, when you come across veterans who walk through the door at the warrior Alliance, kind of, what do you, I mean, I know you have like a, a, a elevator speech that you give them about the warrior <laughs> Alliance, but kind of what is your, what, what do you say to them? What do you want them to know? What do you want them to feel when they walk? I get real with them. Um, I meet them right where they are, whether they're in the dump, they're living out of their car, I, I try to sympathize and empathize with them because I was at that point at one point, although I was never homeless, but I was still in the dump and I get very real with these questions. I ask them very tough questions that maybe they've never been asked before um, straight to their face. And it really pe peels back the layers of what they're going through. Um, I've cried on the phones in person with some of these people that I've never even met before. And it really opens your eyes to how much you can help these people, especially in a situation that you were in some before. What, if anything, have you learned from working with veterans that you didn't learn while you were in the service? That everybody's very similar. Um, everybody has needs. Everybody has a family. And not every, like you said, not every story is the same. Not everybody's career path is the same. Everybody has different um, challenges that they're dealing with. So how to meet them at that challenge that they're currently at. I would, uh, I, I would leave it with this final thought, you know, um, that, uh, your story and and what you've gone through um, is incredibly inspirational. But you know, uh, I challenge you to c continue to write that story, uh, and instead of letting uh, uh, the circumstances dictate it, you get to dictate how, yeah. how all of it ends. And I think that's you know something that a lot of us forget, right? Like, hey, you're writing this story. You are. No nobody else is writing it for you, and you ultimately control yeah. what's left of this story to be told, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, again, they can get in touch with the Warrior Alliance uh, internet, guys. Google. You'll find it very easily. Uh, or check out his IMDb page because it is kind of extensive. It's pretty good. I'm, not, I'm, I'm impressed. Like, not that I wouldn't be, but, you know, you get the point. I say that tongue-in-cheek. It's awesome to see that you've been able to do that. Yeah. But still able to do it now. Um, that's amazing, you know, uh, to, to be able to kind of have that on your resume, to be able to do that. It's really cool. Um, I know you're raising a family now, and you got one yep. of your kids. And wishing you the best of that. Thank Stay you. Listen, man, take care of you. Take care of your mental health. Take care of your physical health. Get that Achilles heel. Start jumping over boxes. and Absolutely. 
everywhere you got to go. I know, I know you and I will cross paths again real soon, but yes, sir. Listen, brother, I've, I've enjoyed getting to hear more of this uh, and, and, and know a little bit more about you. Next time I see you, I'll, I'll shake your hand and give you a big hug. Cause definitely courage. I appreciate you, it. The courage it took you to tell this story is, uh, is more than you'd give it credit for. So I thank you for that. Thank you, Patrick Brown. Thanks for being part of the hazard ground. All right. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the hazard ground podcast hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.